And welcome to the Fizzy Sherbet podcast, an international platform for women writers and directors. Every week we pack in a ton of audible treats, including a new short play, an interview with the playwright and a further interview with a special guest. Sometimes it's a theatre person, but not always. We're here to provide a platform to inspire and for a great time. Join us for the series. Let's get fizzing. And this week is doubly exciting as it's our very first episode of our pilot series. Throughout this series, we'll be sharing plays by playwrights from South Africa, the US, UK, Denmark, Germany, Hong Kong and Australia, directed by directors from around the world. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is hosted by three titans of industry, British-German director Lily McLeish, German-British writer Tamara von Bertan and Australian-British actor and writer Josephine Start. This episode is hosted by Lily McLeish and Josephine Start. We kick off with the play Lemons by Tamara von Wertan. Lemons is a personal piece about migration, identity, belonging and political change, which grew out of the lockdown travel restrictions. After the play, we'll be talking to Tamara and special guest Nastasia Sommers. Lemons by Tamara von Wertan. Trapped. Not able to swim across the sea. Salty. Grey too deep, and waves, chipped nail polish, staring at the tips of my shoes, not being able to get up, every certainty wiped off the table like so many crumbs, but we're all in the same boat now, only some more so than others, or in a bigger boat maybe, with a stronger engine. I look back across the sea to where I've come from, all those years ago, with one suitcase and a rucksack, spilling out of the overnight coach at Victoria Station, a weak tea and a bacon bap in a greasy spoon calf at five in the morning, felt so exotic, felt so grown up, making my way by tube across this new and strange city, a city full of strangers. All I had was an email printout with directions. Starting a course at a university. Not knowing who would be behind the brick walls as I sat on my suitcase in front of the locked gates on the pavement in Mile End Road. I didn't know that people behind these walls would read poems at my wedding on a Scottish island. That we would sing and dance and laugh together play spin the bottle in a half ironic way that I'd throw up snake bite on their shoes have backyard barbecues and camping holidays stay in touch across continents and even between London and the countryside back home when I did go home people were impressed I lived in London with all the cool kids that was the late 90s, when Britannia was at the height of cool. The music, the clothes. Just being able to speak the language. The longer I stayed, the deeper I fell. I fell for walking along a suburban street in cold grey morning light after a party with my friends in dirty clothes and with bleary eyes feeling somehow vaguely iconic like the Beatles crossing that zebra crossing this too was London and we too were young the windy small roads of Devon with a map on my knees and PJ Harvey from a tinny car radio hedges so high and green and soft looking, you felt safe like nothing else. Waking up by the sea, pitching our tent at every empty stretch of coast we could find. 
the thrill of forbidden wild camping and that lady walking her dog in the morning. Writing at my tiny school desk, bought and carried home from a small antiques shop in Bloomsbury. From the window in my tower block I could see the whole of London stretch below me as if it was mine and only mine. Baking my own bread long before this sourdough craze that's sweeping the nation now, when everyone seemed to think a sliced white loaf was all you needed. My first proper job brought me together with brilliant people whose minds were so sharp it made me shiver. They loved language and knew how to use it, and I soaked it all up like a thirsty sponge. There were still words I couldn't pronounce because I'd only ever read them in books. But they surrounded me with a sea of banter and songs and witty remarks, with facts and history and ways of looking at the world. They were so British, they were just how I wanted to be, and I let them teach me. Fell deeper still when I met the father of my children. His steady hands, the way he knew the world from the inside out, not the outside in like me. He used to be the boy I read about when I was young, the one drinking lemonade in his secret club in the garden shed, and I found him. With each birth, I was more deeply anchored to this country that I'd chosen all those years ago. Small faces unfolding gradually, each day a little more present, their thoughts and minds shaping mine, their hands in mine walking all these streets again, getting to know the park and the details of the small world around our home like nothing I've ever known. And with children, this richness of new friends. Friends living where you live. Friends everywhere you go. Just popping out for some milk or to the greengrocers and you're bound to see friends. To stop for a chat. London. This huge city full of strangers, exciting and scary, had folded itself around me like a warm coat. I suddenly belonged. I was part of it. And then the world started changing. Leave or stay was the big question. And that feeling of being on borrowed time. Feeling that I was only suffered here and that most people don't want strangers coming in. That they want to close the borders. And what did that mean for those of us already here? Were we even allowed to stay? That feeling hit me hard. Many of my friends in a similar position to me took the hint and left. Went back, took up residence in Berlin greener, easier to live, better childcare, great cultural landscape. They were happy, felt it was the right time. But I could not. I felt as though I was stuck to the ground, it was like glue. I was buried up to my knees in the soil. I was so in love, but I felt it's been a lie. It was unrequited from the start. My roots go deep here, and I don't know if I could start again, if I wanted to. My little world was still intact, my family, my neighborhood, our friends. And then another sweeping change. After three years of waking up to news about political divisions, suddenly a new threat unites the nation. That is, for a few weeks, we're really all in this together. Until we realize that different rules apply to those who make the rules. Until we realize that we are pitied all over the world in how badly this crisis is managed, how high the death rate. We're the pariah now. Who would want travelers from the UK in their newly pandemic-free state? Until we realize that very quietly, 
Brexit has just been slipped past us while we were busy looking elsewhere. It becomes quite clear that this is no longer the country I came to when I was young. And now I am standing at the edge of it, by the shore, looking at my shoes, looking out over the grey ashy water to where I know I've come from all these years ago. There's a fish and chips styrofoam package trodden into the ground and seagulls fighting over smashed up chips. They squawk and wheel up high into the sky, then swoop low and crash their beaks together, their claws scrabbling over the concrete. A puddle of sick with carrot in and some chewing gum stuck to a railing. And my nail varnish is chipped and the waves lap onto the pebbles. And the sea is deep and cold and wide. This reading of Lemons was directed by Sandra Theresa Buch and performed by Tamara von Wertan with composition by Esben Tjalve. Tamara von Wertan is a British-German writer who came to the UK at the age of 21. She studied at Queen Mary University of London and Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. She writes plays, screenplays, fiction and poetry and is published with Nick Herm Books. She's also the co-founder of this podcast, Fizzy Sherbet, and opening our pilot season with her play Lemons. So full disclosure, Tamara and I and Lily do all know each other. This is not a mystery meeting. Um, we've worked together quite a bit. And actually, we're all on the team for Fizzy Sherbet. So this question won't come as a surprise. But what we um, wanted to start with, Tamara, is because we're called Fizzy Sherbet, which is our uh, name for the platform, we wondered if we could ask you, just as a little warmer up uh, opener, if you have a suite with a story any kind of sweet? There is a little story about fizzy sherbet itself or, or the lemon sherbet that the name comes from, which I love. And it's become a bit of a family sweet now. My children are really keen on it because we don't really have sweets at home. But when we started the readings, we thought it would be a really nice little gimmick to give everyone in the audience a fizzy sherbet before the show started. So we then had bags of them at home. And now the kids are just really into them and I just love the excitement of eating a fizzy sherbet because there's this fizz at the at the end of the experience <laughs> so you kind of you have the nice sweet and then at the end there's a real kick to it and I really like that fantastic great so yeah tomorrow we've just listened to uh lemons your play lemons and uh we would love to ask you what was the inspiration behind the play how did it start right um when I wrote, I wrote it very quickly in, in one go um, and thought, where did that come from? But then I actually had another look through my diaries um, and also some of the poetry I'd been writing. And I realized that, that the play has been in my head for quite a long time. Um, and it's probably the most personal piece I've ever written. And it's sort of... I think it got to the point where I had to give myself permission to write something about my experience as a migrant to the UK. And um, I think for a long time, I really tried to assimilate um, and write uh, plays that were as British as I could make them. And now for this piece, I think I gave myself permission to do something about my own experience and also um, performing it myself was a decision that the director made. Uh, she asked me, mm -hmm. Sandra Buch asked me to, to perform it myself because it's such a personal piece. And I was quite hesitant because I haven't acted um, in this country for a long time since my um, days at, at Queen Mary and, and Central um, because I have an accent. But for this piece, of course, we needed someone with an accent. So we we decided to go with that. Um, and yeah, that, that was a really 
empowering experience um, and I think it is a problem for a lot of people in my position who work in in the UK theatre industry um, but are not from the UK were not born in Britain um, that is quite hard to find a niche for them to fit in or a space and a lot of them have to work really hard to to either assimilate or to carve out their own space and make their own performances. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. You saying about your acting before in India, because I know that you did acting before you came to the UK, and then yes. it's a, and um, and moving into writing, and maybe you'll do more acting of your own work. Who knows? <laughs> Um, that channel is open now. Um, but I was really curious because obviously I've, um, I've read and been involved in some of your work before. And I'm really interested by you saying you felt that um, previously you were trying to write stuff that was more British. And I suppose um, that's not something I picked up on, but I did pick up on um, a kind of uh, the the way that you write about things well this is this piece seems maybe particularly autobiographical but you you often draw directly from your own life um so when you wrote the white bike i know that you're a cycle an avid cyclist and um and again that was drawing directly from um interests in your own life and kind of fears in your own life how do you um how would you describe the relationship between your writing and your own lived experiences generally as a writer Yes, I think that's very uh, true. And I also thought back to the white bike when thinking about lemons, because I think there's something about making political theatre where I feel you can only get a message across if, it, if you draw on your own personal experience so that people can identify with what... So you sort of open up the emotional core of the piece by going through your own emotions. And especially for the white bike, I felt a huge responsibility because it wasn't my story that I was telling. I was drawing on uh, Eile Kahn's um, death. Uh, he was he was killed by a lorry and I had interviewed her family members. And I was um, very honored to be given access to the, to the inquest notes. And so I knew a lot of detail about that case, but then I also felt because I was doing something that was so personal to another family that I had to draw on my own experience and sort of expose myself within within that as well mm -hmm. um, to to give it a true um, yeah for, for the story to hit home and for me to to really identify with it and I think that is a way that I, I mean I'm also a poet so I, I kind of I'm very used to to drawing from my own experience and, and my own emotions mm -hmm. in my work. Um, I think maybe the, the Britishness, <laughs> I think I know that I have a very different voice because of my background, um, but I'm also um, just really aware of language in a different way. So I also write in German, I write um, crime fiction in German, but um, if you're bilingual, it's really, really tricky to find um i think both of your users of language are slightly skew but mm. in, you know you use some words that other people who only have that language wouldn't use or constructions mm. so that there's interesting yeah. things happening in your head and i think so you will always have quite a unique voice if you come from a different background and and i don't think that's a bad thing but of course, you don't want that to distract too much from what you're trying to say either. So you need to find a good middle ground yeah. of having, you know, having it sound as correct as possible while still diverting from mm -hmm. the status quo in, in certain points. Mm. That's something I've noticed definitely working with, because um, I work with poets as well um, as a writer, and particularly um, poets who use English as a second language, the way that they very naturally evade cliche, partly because it's just they're just not using the same, you know, the same, the similes and metaphors are different, and then in translation, they're kind of different again. So I think definitely there's, there's something, you get something extra from coming at a 
come coming at a language and coming at writing in a language from somewhere else that is just very fresh as well yes I think. yeah mm, absolutely yeah I'd love to also just talk to you a bit about your process uh, tomorrow I feel that um as a director working with you I love the fact that you're such a super fast writer. It, it, well, that, that's how it feels, uh, obviously, from my point of view, and that you love notes, and it, it feel, you feel like a very collaborative writer. And I know that you also collaborate with another writer on pieces of work. Would you say that in, that is part of your process? I think that's part of my nature and personality. I always go quite fast at things, and I have a lot of energy um, that I put into the writing. I think, I mean, my collaborators, Jack Hughes, who I've known for a long time because we studied together um, and we're actually both parents now as well. So we, we have um, families and very limited time, but I kind of feel that as soon, my daughter's 12 now, so as soon as she was born, it, things really kicked off for me because I suddenly had to compartmentalize my time a lot more. So I would have short amounts of time and I would really use them so I, I then realized how much time I wasted before I had kids because I just felt I had all day and now I've got an hour and a half or two hours and then I will I will use those two hours really well and um, and I think we mentioned the cycling before as well I think that really helps me to have a physical activity that's sort of built into my day and so I, I used to commute for re for a really long distance um so i was on the bike for nearly three hours a day going just to the office and back and in that time i did a lot of writing in my head so i kind of feel like i i had a lot of space built into my day that allowed me to sort of unspool thoughts and to to just build on things and then the way my week well, everything is up in the air at the moment because of the situation we're in with the lockdown. But um, it used to be, I, after the maternity leave, I went back to only work four days a week in my day job, which is with um, Nikon Books. And um, one day a week then became my writing day when the kids were old enough to go to school. And then I had a whole day to write, uh, well, until 3.30. Um, and that that meant that I was very productive because I could sort of build up all the ideas in the week leading up to that day and then just use that day. Mm. Yeah, that's really fascinating because we've we've talked in the past about children and writing and uh, the challenges of being uh, a writer with children, uh, particularly, you know, maybe as a woman. Uh, and I've always been really heartened by the way that you have always turned your children into a positive uh, as a writer. You've because they, as you say, they've helped you kind of manage your time, and you've, you've, um, yeah, they, they, they've really added to your creative life. I think, but I would be interested to hear your perspective on challenges as well. That kind of being a writer, maybe a, a woman with children, uh, those challenges. Yes, I think it is really difficult because you also, I mean, especially during this time as well now with with everything that's happening around fizzy sherbet um it's the summer holidays so it's quite it's quite a challenge to you know like i had a i had to write an email yesterday and i had to interrupt myself three times to break up some kind of quibble um mm -hmm. between my kids and it's the it's the attention focus so i think yes it, it it's a it's a hard thing especially if you do something creative that you need full attention, um, you know, you need your head clear. And then and you, I think it's really about time management and also finding a good way of divvying out, giving each other time in a relationship so that, you know, it's equally shared and you have, you know, this window of time is for you. Mm. So I think that's important, the organization around it. Um, and then also, of course, to give, full attention to your children during the time that you have the children which yeah, is also sometimes I feel I'm failing at it but um, on the whole I think it works quite well. Uh, another interesting thing about you Tamara as a writer um, so obviously uh, most writers have another job that they also do if not all but but many do um, and you work uh, for Nick Hearn Books which is a very famous um, theatrical publishers 
And uh, I'm really curious as to how kind of working in publishing and working specifically in kind of theatrical publishing um, impacts your work as a writer, kind of, you know, positively and negatively, maybe. That's a great question. I have worked for Nick for, it was literally my first job after uni. So I've been there for a long time now. And it does feel to me a little bit like a family. I really love my colleagues. Um, it's a very, it's a job that once you, you're there, most people don't leave. So I've been with my colleagues for a long time as well and have been, that they have um, been developing as artists as well. So I think at least half of us are also playwrights who, who work there. So I think it's quite a fruitful atmosphere to, to work in as a writer because you get to read enormous amounts of plays and you're surrounded by brilliant writing and other writers. And I felt from the beginning that it was like an extension of my studies really um to to be able to just have that as part of my job and and i really i really still really love it and enjoy it but of course i mean it it's also hard to work in a job in the same industry because it's um maybe also because you're always surrounded by such brilliant writing and then you get like a lot of self-doubt like the the bar is quite high um when when you compare yourself to all those other writers that, that are on our list, like Harold Churchill, Lucy Kirkwood, Jess Butterworth, Mike Bartlett. Um, it's, it's, quite, it's quite something to, and also that point at which do you call yourself a writer? I've been writing from the age of 12. I've, I've always been writing, but the, I think it took me quite a long time to, to say, yes, I am a writer. I've been writing poetry since, I was 17 and um, I've only in the last few years been going more public with it, sort of sending it out to magazines and, and I've had a performance just before the lockdown, my first gig. <laughs> um, and it, that, yeah, just getting more confidence in, in that mm -hmm. as well. But I think for me, I, I'm, I'm published with Nick and Books, which was a really big moment for me in my career um, because I felt that I was sort of being acknowledged publicly now as a writer and, and also that feeling of having a play not just for me but also that other people can read it that other people can perform it that kind of thing I think is a really big step for any writer because it's it's just a new yeah it's just a new part of the of the process of the career that yeah mm. so that was a big thing and that was with with the white bike which which we we were all three working on <laughs> and which was yeah. which was a really big um mm. point in my career you okay. just mentioned a few uh, really brilliant writers in what you just said and i just wondered are there any women in the arts at the moment who you are inspired by well, I, I am and have always been a huge fan of Carol Churchill. I love Lucy Kirkwood's work as well. And, um, but there are so many women. Anna Jordan is amazing. Um, I am always amazed at, at the work that women who, who I'm connected with in the industry are doing. And, and not just as writers, I mean, also, I've worked with such brilliant directors and actors and, and I always, I'm always really humbled by the energy and the commitment that they bring to the work and how much, how hard they work. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not saying that that is particular to, to women, but I think anyone in the theatre industry, it's just incredible how much how much work and passion is poured into any project and um if if you are a privy to to look behind the scenes of a rehearsal room it's it's just amazing and i i kind of feel a bit i have the easy way out because i'm a writer so i can just do it wherever and whenever i want to but in order to make it then come alive you just have to really be there in the room at that time and give it 150%. And I really admire that. 
yeah and I, I kind of looking at the people I've worked with I've worked with a, a lot of female directors actually and have always enjoyed that experience very much I don't know it's maybe because the work I do the, the way I write because it's so personal it's also quite um it's, it's a quite a strong female voice so that's maybe what attracts female collaborators to it well I think we've got to keep these interviews so short unfortunately we could just talk for hours and hours and hours and it would be amazing but thank you so much Tamara and thank you so much for your your wonderful piece and um, we look forward to obviously be doing more talking to you soon because you're doing some of the interviews <laughs> so, um, yeah but, um, but that's fantastic thank you Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Danish director Sandra Teresa Buch tells us why she chose Direct Lemons. Hello, my name is Sandra Buch and I directed Lemons. When I read the text, uh, I was immediately moved by it. I was moved by its um, honesty, straightforward way of telling a story about falling in love with a culture and then being deceived by a nation, um, but still being in love with the culture. I felt it was a, a very simple, honest testimony of something quite complex. So a personal story covering a political situation. There were images and also um, sentences and words in it, which made me think of political change as an engine as a brutal machine or a tank that rolls over you. And I wanted to bring that sensation or that feeling to the forefront, this brutality uh, when a political hap a change happens and it affects your personal life. You can't really do anything about it. You can accept or you can go with it or, or you can flee. And in this story, she doesn't accept, but she stays which brings this uncertainty and anger to the text and it's underneath it all and I was really drawn to that uh, so at one end of the text or spectrum of the text there's a nostalgia and love and at the other uh, end of it uh, you feel this anger and brutality. Our special guest today is London-based feminist theatre maker and director Nastasia Sommers. Originally from Poland, she has worked both in the UK and abroad. Nastasia's recent work includes collaborating with Middle Child on their Brexit cabaret, Us Against Whatever, directed by Maureen Lennon, directing A Feminist Call to Arms 10 by Lizzie Milton at Vault Festival 2019, directing the English world premiere of Stanislav Wyspanski's The Death of Ophelia at Shakespeare's Globe, and directing This Kind of Air by Romanian playwright Vera Ion at the Bunker Theatre. She directed Pavan Sadikian's award-winning show Duel at Vault Festival and prior to the outbreak of COVID-19, directed Argentinian piece Invisibles by Lola Lagos, which never played to the public. Nastasia's work is rooted in Eastern European practice through using theatre as the tool of resistance and amplifying underrepresented voices. She holds an MA in Applied Theatre from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. Welcome, thank you so much Hello. for being here. <laughs> what thank a bio. <laughs> Amazing, incredible. Um, so just to kick us off, Nastasia, we've got a slightly odd opening question, but it's something that we're asking everybody um, because, so we are called Fizzy Sherbet because when we started, it was for new writing and it was at the Hackney Attic and um, everybody got a little Fizzy Sherbet sweet on their seats as they came as a kind of little thank you, exciting taster. And it, cause it, it just kind of felt synonymous with the excitement of theater, something kind of fizzing and sharp. So we were just wondering uh, whether you also have potentially a sweet with a story or meaning for you. Oh God, that's a good <laughs> <one>. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> uh, you got me here. Um, you know what? I was on Friday. I went to the Lebanese um, supermarket um, on uh, in Kilburn where I live, and um, there is those Lebanese um, sweets um, that I absolutely love and that are vegan friendly, which is great. And mm. they uh, some of them have mint in them, and I've realized that. Uh, for me, this, the taste of mint and just the, the freshness of it, no matter what happens, always reminds me of being in Morocco, mm -hmm. um, which was about eight years ago. And uh, I think that's 
in general that's what what foods mean for me <laughs> i think mm-hmm. it's that you know that brings back, back memories and different connections to different people and different places so yes my favorite sweets are lebanese sweets nice. from the shop uh, on <laughs> kilburn high road i recommend highly <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. They actually sound incredibly delicious. They do. (laughs) So, Nastasia, Lemons looks directly at the experience of a European migrant in Britain right now. And uh, a very important part of your work uh, is migrant and international work. And you have set up a theatre company called Beasts from the East, which focuses on making theatre with, for and by immigrants. Yes. I'd love you, if you want, to talk a bit about the theatre company you have set up. Um, so uh, we've set this up, uh, me, Mishka Grodlova and Vera Ion, uh, we set this company up uh, prior to starting work on Vera's This Kind of Air, which I directed uh, an extract from last year as part of Fine Size at the Bunker. And was it last year? God's time is weird. Yes, it was last year. And uh, we set it up just prior because we were off to start a lab on the piece. We were off to a sort of, uh, we started conversations with different venues about touring. Uh, you know, we had Arts Council and then this happened. <laughs> so yes, so we set up Beast from the East, um, amazing name, to uh, sort of, you know, focus on the work that is by migrants, for migrants, and that addresses the current state of affairs of what it means to be a migrant in Britain and you know this kind of air uh, it was completely by accident that I ended up working on it and Matt uh, from Pine Sized called me in and he said we have this 20 minute extract it's a Romanian piece would you like to direct it and I've read it and I was like yes this is exactly what I've sort of been you know praying to the theatre gods for and it's a it's it's a pretty much I would call it a love letter to all the Eastern Europeans you know who have been here and uh, yes Vera's finished the full draft now and we were to start you know a lab uh, in a very Eastern European um, sense of R&D so a lab rather than a sitting around the table on it and and now all of this is postponed but the company we're hoping you know to keep going with it and uh, we're still in touch all the time talking and we've become great friends the three of us since um mm-hmm. since we met so yes um that's that's what we are about fantastic so i just picked up on in in that there you mentioning um the concept of a lab and a kind of eastern european lab as opposed to a um a kind of table, table read. yeah <laughs> and i was just wondering um and i feel like you may have some thoughts on this um what are some things about uh polish and or european theater that you would like to see more of in the british theater scene and uh, and potentially vice versa are there things that the british scene you'd like to see more of in europe i don't know yeah so i think you know there's loads obviously and the sort of work that migrants in theater that i'm you know involved with and the organizational of that uh, are tackling Uh, it's very much about that but i think for me you know essentially uh, having done a thesis on you know political theater and the power of theater in sort of you know crisis times you know the main difference is the political of the theater where I come from and that you cannot separate the political from the stage and I think uh, the method of working as well because there's just so much misunderstanding and misconceptions about you know the reggae theater which you know here they call it director's theater and it's rather you know it's an an offensive thing to be (laughs) you know a director's theater and I think all of these conversations are quite you know futile and also juvenile about what is writer's theater what is director's theater I think for me it's mostly about collaboration and you know, if you if you are familiar with Grotowski's work, if you're familiar with Cantor's work, uh, or even more more you know uh, more right now more modern contemporary practitioners such as Klaczewska, they're all about collaboration rather than you know some director's vision that is getting imposed on everyone. And um, so I think that's my main thing. And we always wanted to do a lab because it felt you know that if this is what our company is. This is where we all, you know, Mishka's from Slovakia, Vera's from Romania, I'm from Poland. All the actors who were involved, you know, they were from Eastern Europe as well. And so, yes, I think 
it's more about collaborating and creating together. That's what my answer would be. I mean, you've just mentioned, I think, a really important point about director's theatre, writer's theatre, and just maybe some differences between European theatre and maybe British theatre. And one of the things I noticed, because I work a lot in Germany, is obviously that the funding situation in both in Britain and Germany is quite different. And the German theatres, the Stadttheater, are funded in a very different way, which means that potentially, I wonder if that could be one of the reasons why they can afford, or also obviously the history of how um, theatre has developed over the years, but they can afford in a different way to make theatre than maybe British theatres can, because they're funded in a different way, which means that they are, I think British theatres are more reliant on audiences, but I don't know, what would you think? Do you yeah, think? absolutely. I think, you know, the, the reason why we, uh, where we are right now is because this, and I'm doing the sign of uh, quotes in the air, world leading, world beating theatre, British theatre, um, is 70% uh, reliant on ticket sales. And that is not um, in any way sustainable. It was never sustainable. There is also, you know, question of this industry being overcrowded. And at some point we'll have to face that as well. Uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people working in this industry. And if we have to move towards sustainability, we will have to address it at some point. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'm from a country which proceeds having national theatre by 200 years compared to Britain. You know, there was no national theatre in this country until the 60s. And, uh, you know, I don't think the value on art has been put, you know, in, I don't think the public is on our side, probably not. And I don't think, you know, the politicians are on our side, which isn't too much of a problem. They never should be on the side of theatre if you're really, you know, all about it. But I think the main difference is that, you know, places like Germany, uh, where the state subsidy is huge and are probably the biggest in Europe, and places like Poland, where the state subsidy is also much bigger than here, and you know, and the amount of buildings that do get state subsidies uh, is an example of you know completely different cultures and completely different um, societies with a very very different relationship to state subsidized arts. Mm. Mm. And I think yes, I think Lily, you are hundred percent right. You know, theaters in Germany and Poland and Hungary and uh, you know pretty much every single uh, former Eastern Bloc are now re reopened. You know, they're at 30-40% capacity, but they can afford to do that. Yeah. Uh, whilst here, it's not financially viable. That's right. Mm. Mm. So, um, you, yeah, the point you make there about potential overcrowding in the industry is a, is a really interesting one. It's, it's quite a controversial uh, point as well. And I think what often gets said to, certainly to actors, I think to any kind of maker is this idea of making your own work, kind of be, people being advised to make their own work. And, um, and I was wondering what, what advice you would give to, to theatre makers of all kinds, coming from all backgrounds, who are trying to generate change within the theatre industry as well. I think the most important thing for me is that you need to find out who, and I was, I didn't know that, you know, five, six years ago when I was entering the industry, who you are and, you know, what is important for you, uh, why you want to do theater, you know, and that, you know, for me it was, oh, I want to change the world and, you know, <laughs> being six, five years older, having the experience of being in this industry, I know it's not that simple uh, but I think you know setting up a set of principles writing your own manifesto uh, things that will really make your way clearer and will make it much clearer for you who you want to work with and what kind of projects you want to be associated with because uh, God knows there's some things on my CV that I'd rather you know, delete and <laughs> forget about. Uh, but uh, I think there's just, you know, what is it about me that can make a difference? What is it about my practice uh, that is different? And also the most important thing I would say is, you know, know whose shoulders you stand on. Like, you know, none of us invented the wheel. And I think we live in such, you know, capitalistic driven, especially in Britain, this is a society of, you know, it's about the individual. It's always about the individuals. And you can see it in theater, you know, the way we, you know, pick our heroes and 
the way we jump on people and this is the person that's going to change everything. No, no one is. And first of all, there's so many people who came before us, you know, who battled the same things we battle now. So I think learn your history, learn your theater history, you know, find out who, who is, you know, your cup of tea and who isn't. And just, you know, those, I would say this is pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'm just thinking about your journey because I think your journey is really brilliantly interesting because you've worked as an actor, as a literary manager, uh, a producer, a theatre maker and also a director and you combine all these different hats. How do you, you know, how do they influence each other? How do you feel? Does that, do you still work as all of those or have you sort of moved into one or? I've moved um, into more, like, I think everything that I was, you know, trying things out, you know, often, more often than not, unpaid. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I um, I started, I trained as an actor, which I think is still a really good and sort of, you know, influences me how I am as a maker and a director. I do not, you know, it's the saying in Polish regarding directing that you wouldn't want someone who doesn't play a piano to teach you how to play piano so why you know directors don't have an acting background and I think that's really valid and important and you know so that still influences who I am and I think acting school was good for me on in that regard um, in, ter in terms of, you know, producing, I just started producing because I saw no roles for women. I saw no exciting things happening, you know, on the, the way I wanted to see them happen. So I started Hair Story, you know, which was a great, great thing. And I'm still friends with a lot of women who took part of it. And then, you know, it became a bit of a burden for me because people started asking me, oh, would you produce this and would you produce that? And, you know, I had to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations being like, actually, I have no money, <laughs> you know, and um, so I don't know if I can produce that and this. And I think, you know, it definitely wasn't for me the sort of wearing all hats person uh, because it is straining on your mental health and it is an extreme amount of work, uh, often, as I said, unpaid, you know, so I ended up, you know, writing things then staging them then being in them and that is just I don't think that's the most healthy approach and a lot of us do it because we need to find out what we're good at what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong and then I you know moved towards uh, directing dramaturgy and theater making you know m taking all the things that I enjoy most and that's been going quite well and I can't you know I can't forget the first time I was just given one one job role and how freeing that was, <laughs> you know, and when I was just told, you are here to direct and you don't have to worry about anything else. <laughs> and that tells you the kind of, you know, industry we have created that is a very unhealthy industry. And yes, it's great that all of us wear many hats, but I think sometimes we need to ask ourselves, which hat do we actually do enjoy wearing and which do we wear because we have to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something I find because I uh, write and act and have also done, you know, for my own things, bits and pieces of what's essentially producing work. And um, I guess a frustration that I've had, I wonder if you've had it as well, is this, um, I feel particularly in the UK, but maybe I've also worked in Australia, I think in Australia as well, this kind of odd idea that people really are only good at one thing. And, um, and actually, if they're doing more than one thing, it kind of it dilutes their like talent or ability in general. And actually, I, I find that a very frustrating concept because actually the people like so many people I know, it makes complete sense. Like you were saying with your acting training, um, acting training is fantastic director training. I don't know, like, do you feel that there's a slightly myopic view of ability in the UK as well? Or? Yes, and I think, yes, definitely. And I think... But, you know, that comes from a certain level of privilege, I think, that, you know, that that 3% has at the top of this industry, the 3% that runs this industry, right? Uh, because that these are the people who, you know, went to Oxford and then landed themselves an assistant uh, resident uh, job at Donmar. And then they were, you know, running a venue. <laughs> After, you know, that's literally the, the, you know, the career trajectory of people who are privileged, who historically and traditionally have been granted certain opportunities and jobs in British theatre. Um, so that's where I think the lens of it being, oh, this person doesn't know what they're doing because they have produced seven shows, and you mm. know, that means they're just shit, so they have to produce <laughs> their own work. 
uh, which couldn't be further from the truth, you know, and that's, so I think we need to shift how people, um, how people at the top understand what it means to work in theatre, because their struggles are very often not the same struggles that majority of people in this industry experience. Mm. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Um, and I'm just wondering as well, just relating a little bit back to, to Lemons, the play as well, um, speaking of struggle, what are some of the unique challenges facing non-British theatre makers living in the UK right now, do you think? Oh God, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, you know, when it comes to first generation migrants, and I make this distinction on purpose, because I think, yes, you know, we live in a society that is made of migrants, uh, but, you know, first generation, especially since the Brexit vote, you know, our situation has been, as uh, Tamara writes beautifully in um, Lemons, uh, you know, it has been quite unstable. You know, and just to give you an example of where we are at in London, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to be London-centric because, you know, I live in London, so that's why I'm giving it as an example. But in London, 38% uh, of the population uh, of the city is foreign born. And yet, you know, I cannot think of more than one or two maybe artistic directors who are not, you know, born here, who came from migrant, uh, who came here as migrants, mm -hmm. who came, have had to make their own life, you know. Often education is a, a problem as well, um, you know, despite the fact that I trained at Central, so that is a door opener for a lot of people, but there's also a lot of, you know, a lot of migrants who come from state drama schools in, you know, in their countries. These drama schools are often, you know, some of the best conservators in the world, but they're not recognized mm. here. So I think that's a problem as well, which I haven't personally experienced, but I can, you know, speaking about few people mm. speaking about their experience and also knowing how much going to central changed for me you know that there's still this sort of idea and it's actually really interesting in the con um, in the context of the Irish experience because I think speaking with a lot of uh, you know Irish friends who came here for their third level education you know there's that need of still going to Britain to get your paper to be mm. you know uh, to get that validation, which is, you know, really strange. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, the main, the fact that Brexit is here and the fact that many people won't be able to stay here is a big, big problem. A lot of us, you know, we love saying things that are just empty words in this industry. And I think that's also an example for, you know, the last four years have been a massive example of that of the sort of liberal empty you know slogans and promises because everyone on social media loves migrants and everyone hates pretty patel uh, you know some venues go as far as putting eu flag on their terraces but yet they don't engage with you know migrant stories they don't engage with migrant creatives and I think there's also um, another thing which is very complex and I would co probably co talk for an hour about it <laughs> you know and it's the kind of what does it mean to fit into a British theatre industry? And what does that do to you, mm. you know, as a... And I, I, I experienced that and, you know, I, I luckily I woke up. Mm. Uh, but as a migrant, you know, you always... First thing that, you know, when you're in a country that is alien to you, you want to fit in, you want you know, to make friends, you know, so you make sacrifices, you, you know, you alter the way you speak. I graduated drama school thinking that I'm going to just speak with an happy accent because, you know, <laughs> and it's like, why, why should I do that? And uh, so I think that is a huge problem in terms of like, yes, you know, acceptable. What is an acceptable migrant? The experience we want to see. So it's again, you know, it's the, the, the lens of, you know, very, culture dominant you know and i don't want to pick certain venues but mm. there are venues that you know and even the language that has been used in the last you know couple of months uh, you know you, you couldn't ask for more proof that there is still very much that the cultural colonization is very present in the british industry mm -hmm. and uh, i think that is something you know if 
And also, you know, it's the way you look at people. So if you're a Romanian director, why should you only be working on Romanian projects? Mm. You know, and I felt that there was a moment in my life where I was being asked for to be on things just because I was Polish. And mm. yeah, that's great as a as a starter, but mm. <laughs> I can also do work that is not Polish, you know, which I've luckily moved away from just doing that. But yeah, I think there's a lot of boxing happening in this industry and we don't we don't have a box yet which is a first problem right mm -hmm. uh, we we actually can't take anything to tell people what our experience is mm -hmm. and i think it's again as we as we as this industry moves forward i think it just needs to ask itself a bit more regarding who is you know who is allowed to make a noise and who is allowed to to play mm -hmm. with things and change the form, you know, I think that's that's also something that we a lot talk talk about a lot with migrants in theatre is the fact that you know the reason British theatre is so stifled and so museum-like is because it doesn't allow outside influences, and I think that that. But, you know, I think I feel like I went on a run. No, 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 no. It's it's fantastic stuff. I mean, yeah. what's really interesting for me is because I grew up as a British person in Germany, and for a really long time growing up, I always felt in England a bit. When I was with my English friends, I always felt a bit uh, didn't talk much about being German as well. Somehow, I sort of hid that a bit. But when I moved into the theatre industry and started working in Britain as someone who'd been living and working in Germany. For, it suddenly became this really exciting thing, uh, which was sort of really a lot of British theatre makers were really interested in. And I experienced it as a really big positive. So I think that, interestingly, I think German theatre is, uh, quite, people in Britain are quite interested in, in the British industry, are quite, uh, British theatre industry, sorry, are quite interested in German theatre industry, I think, and the German sort of art form, which is really interesting for me, just having grown up in, uh, on the flip side of that. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, there's that, you know, I call them the people who went uh, for a weekend to Berlin and, <laughs> <laughs> and came back with loads of aesthetic ideas, uh, but not actual, you know, understanding of the form and where it comes from. Um, so, I, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry for being, uh, you know, no, 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 stereotypes, no, but no, that's... No, no, <laughs> that's I think generally, you know, over this before the summer started, myself and Alex Istudor uh, started this European uh, theatre club on Twitter. And because German theatre has been streaming a lot, Polish theatre has been streaming a lot. And, you know, we did, people were watching with us, you know. So uh, I think there is interest. It's just how do you access that and what is the best way of, you know, accessing that without putting some sort of British lens onto it. Because mm -hmm. uh, putting some, you know, microphones and zero set on stage <laughs> does not a great piece of theatre make. No. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I think there is an interest. It's just we need to ensure that it's not niche and just start inviting, you know, not only inviting more, like there's only Barbican for God's sake, you know, that was the only venue that was doing it on a massive scale. Don't just do that. Engage with the German, the Hungarian, the you know all the the, uh, the mm. creatives who are already here as well. You know, and I think that that is the way of you know ensuring that we keep building bridges and not mm. pretty Patel's walls. Mm. Fantastic. We could actually talk to you for hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last question. Would you mind? Because we're just asking everyone this as well because we just would love to celebrate more women artists. Is there a woman in the arts or otherwise, alive or otherwise, who you are inspired by at the moment? Oh my God, so many. <laughs> Good, name of you. So, so many. So for me, absolute hero number one is Biliana Sriblianovic. She is a Balkan a creative writer, a very politically engaged. Um, she wrote um, Belgrade Trilogy, uh, which is actually translated into English. Hooray! Uh, <laughs> it's part of uh, it's a part of you know anthology of a place which is called Eastern Promise, and they're all plays from Eastern lands. You can order them online. So she's my absolute hero number one. Uh, Maya Kleczewska as well, who's a Polish director and who I sort of, you know, when I was 14, 15, was fangirling over and, uh, you know, a lot of her work was staged in my, in the theatre in town I'm from. 
Uh, oh my God, this is really hard. I'm reading a lot of Bernardine Evaristo right now and she's my hero as well. I think we need to talk a bit more about her involvement in theater, uh, in British theater in the 80s. You know, that brings me back to uh, Spare Tire, a feminist company that was also, you know, uh, here back in the day and now it's forgotten because fucking patriarchy. <laughs> Honestly, I could go on for, for hours. Uh, also, my absolute favorite is uh, Audrey Lord, mm. um, you know, who I very much take, you know, her words and put them into my practice, similar with Bell Hooks. Yes, I could go on for hours. Amazing. <laughs> list you've just given us so thank you yeah thank you that's absolutely sensational uh chat with you we've loved just loved it but thank you so much for having me no uh, worries it was a pleasure on podcast on yeah. podcast my first podcast wow <laughs> amazing <laughs> ours too thanks so much for joining us the frizzy podcast is edited by julian Starr and lily mcleish with intro music by jane dixon Next week, we'll be listening to the Place One song by the incredible Bouchle Garba and talking to Bouchle and her special guest Naledi Majola. For more info on Fizzy Sherbet and for tips on how to help support new writing by women and how to contribute your own play to our podcast series, please visit our gorgeous website, fizzysherbetplays.com.